we walked around the massive abandoned series of interconnected buildings that were once Spaceport Canada several times without finding a way in. We climbed up a rusty, precarious ladder on the top of the decrepit and silent husk. From the top, we could see for kilometers over the northern tundra short scrubby trees and thick mosses, the stones worn smooth by the weather in the Canadian subarctic. On the roof of one of the metal corridors connecting the massive buildings, we saw a hatch. It was open. We peered inside. A red metal ladder ran down into the inky blackness below. I shone the light on my phone down, but I still couldn't see the bottom. I tried the ladder. It seemed stable. Stable enough, I suppose. I swung around and began climbing down into the site of what was once the heart of Canada's space program. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard. The podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes with your host and author, Andrew McLean. Before the pandemic threw my life into upheaval, I worked as a surveyor. Basically, I made maps. I traveled all over North America, from the Florida Keys up to Nunavut, setting up equipment on the ground, and then a little airplane with a very high-tech and very expensive camera would fly overhead, making sophisticated maps, tracking the changing climate. In the summer of 2019, the medium-sized company I worked for sent me to Winnipeg. As soon as I got there, I was told to board a train to Churchill, Manitoba. I wasn't prepared for that. I'd packed for the sweltering Winnipeg summer. The day I boarded the train, it was 30 degrees out. When I arrived in Churchill 48 hours later, it was 15 degrees. The shorts I'd brought wouldn't be much use up here, and the swimsuit I packed also wouldn't be that much use. Also, I'd only packed one pair of pants. The company told us that we would be back in Winnipeg in three days. As it turned out, that wouldn't be the case. We went to our site, we set up our equipment, deep in the tundra, and we waited for the plane to fly over. I'd never been to the Canadian North before, and I hadn't really known what to expect. The night before, when I'd fallen asleep on the train, through the window was passing the usual Canadian lakes and forests that I was used to. The next morning when I opened the curtains of the train's window, all of that was gone. It was replaced by a boggy, rocky tundra and small, scrubby little trees. It was disconcerting and strange. I felt alien within my own home country. Waiting for the plane out there was nerve-wracking. Earlier, back in our hotel, which was a log cabin with the skin of a giant polar bear complete with its head still attached mounted on a wall, the hotel owner's son was working the desk. Skinny little blonde boy in his final year of high school and he was appalled that we were going out to the woods without a gun. We phoned the company to report this. The company said they weren't getting us a gun. I was kind of relieved. I'm not really the gun sword anyways. I really had no plan B out there if a polar bear showed up. I would just be its lunch, I guess. Waiting at the site, we were devoured by flies. As a Maritimer, 
I thought I understood how bad flies were. I was from New Brunswick. I mean, we know black flies, we know mosquitoes, we know those big deer flies that take big chunks out of you. I've also spent a decent portion of my life in rural Newfoundland where bogs and the flies that come with them are also common. Neither of those places have anything on the flies up in Canada's north. We didn't have cell reception where we waited for the plane. We waited and waited. Eventually we got exasperated and we decided we were driving to find reception to call the company to see what happened to our plane. We got into this beat up old black pickup truck from the 1990s that the company had rented us and drove until we found reception and called the company. They said to get to the airport immediately. At the airport, we found two ashen-faced individuals who also worked for the company, the pilot and the person who operated the expensive camera from onboard the plane. The very obviously shaken pilot recounted that when they'd flown up from Winnipeg to Churchill without incident, they stopped at the airport in Churchill to get fuel. Then they took off, but just as they banked and headed towards the site where we were, the engine cut out. They were lucky that they'd just taken off and had been able to coast the plane back into the airport without power and land safely, even with a dead engine. The plane needed a whole new engine, which had to be shipped up from Wisconsin by train. The train's freight was all backlogged, so it would be three weeks until it got there. In the meantime, we were to wait in Churchill. So much for getting back to Winnipeg in three days. I decided to spend that time exploring. Despite being a pretty avid world traveler, I've backpacked through 37 countries on five different continents, but I've actually never been to Canada's north. Churchill, in the north of Manitoba, relatively close to Nunavut, is home to 899 people. Despite its small size, it's relatively prosperous due to the railway. Grain is shipped from the great wheat fields on the western plains of Canada's prairies to its port, where it's loaded into ships in the Hudson Bay and sent to Europe. Its critical railway had been wiped out two years before I had gotten there, and had only recently been repaired before I arrived. That's why it took 48 hours for my train ride to get from Winnipeg to Churchill. Earth's warming, the tundra's thawing, cautious train engineers went slow to be sure the train's rails wouldn't buckle. At some points, they'd stop to get out and check on the state of the rails. At other points, they got out and walked beside the train, just watching the rails. It's a curious thing to see a person walking alongside a train, especially when their pace is actually slightly faster than that train. Churchill is very densely packed together. It only covers a few blocks. Most of the buildings are prefabricated concrete with these metal low-rise interconnected apartment buildings. They don't look altogether different from those British rows of brick council houses in spirit, but they look very different in their gray and white colors. The streets are unpaved and the roads don't go very far. They certainly don't link up with other highways, which are actually hundreds of kilometers away to the south. The roads start at the massive terminal of the shipport, where these grey concrete structures which store grain reach far into the sky. 
From there, the dirt road stretches through town. It features four restaurants and three bars. The town was built along a massive complex, which through these interconnected tunnels, linked up a health center, a library, a gym, a yoga studio, a school, a saltwater pool, and an administrative center. I was there in summer. It was relatively nice. The weather most days was around 15 degrees. It's not like that in winter. The darkness will last through most days, and the temperature falls into the minus 40s. I'd miss the North's famous midnight sun, but only just barely. The sun would be setting at about 11.30 at night. Churchill is on the Hudson Bay, and standing on the bay's coast, you can see white beluga whales, which come in close to the shore. There must be around 30 of them, close to the town at any given time. I often stood by the shore watching them. That was until a local drove up and told me that I shouldn't be there alone. That a polar bear might attack me. Even during the day. Even right in the middle of town. Obviously, in the Maritimes where I'm from, polar bears are not an issue. I was flabbergasted. I'd never even considered the possibility of being attacked by a polar bear at all, ever, let alone right in the middle of town. There are actually many big signs with these white block letters on them posted all over town that read, if a polar bear attacks, fight back. Hmm, that was it. They didn't elaborate any further. What am I supposed to do <laughs> to fight back against the polar bear? On the flip side though, people in Churchill actually always left their houses and their cars unlocked just in case someone needed to take shelter inside of them to hide from a polar bear. Which is much more pragmatic than fighting a polar bear. Locals also had a group that rapidly responds if a polar bear comes to town. A number is dialed, and the members of this group rush into action coming together in a group and chasing the bear out of town using flares and noisemakers. I actually witnessed this myself one day. It was raining and I was sitting in my hotel room. Hearing a noise in the muddy road outside, I opened my curtain and I looked out and I saw a polar bear run by right outside my window, quickly followed by a group of about half a dozen people chasing it with flare guns. It was wild. Even if Canada's one country, these diverse parts are completely alien to one another. One crisp and cold night, as I grew increasingly restless, I went for a drive towards the one road past the airport. Far in the distance, there were some massive hulking towers silhouetted against the sun that had just set. Though they were out of season, the northern lights appeared. It was the first time I'd ever seen them. It was magical. They stretched out all the way across the sky, from one end of the horizon all the way to the other. And they shimmered and they danced. They sliced brightly across the sky. I got out of the beat up old truck and I stood far beneath them, staring up in awe. You've probably seen pictures of the northern lights, all brightly colored, illuminating the night sky. But that doesn't even quite do them justice. The northern lights move, they move fast, they swirl and they spin like they're dancing. I was utterly speechless as I stood there in the dark and dirt road watching them 
had never seen anything like it. And from where I was, on that dirt road, I could see those massive hulking structures stretching into the sky. It was a spaceport. In 1952, as the Cold War heated up, Canada built a rocket testing range in the Arctic near Churchill. The target of these rockets were actually the Northern Lights. They were firing rockets at the Northern Lights. The goal was to capture the Northern Lights and bring them back to Earth, and then somehow turn them into weapons to use against the Soviet Union if a war ever broke out. That sounds crazy, but that's still what happened. There is some logic to it though. The Northern Lights did, and they still do, scramble and cut off communication and they interfere with transmissions. The Canadian government was wondering if this could be weaponized somehow and used to cut off an enemy's communication during a time of war. However, after building the base and firing off rockets at the Northern Lights to capture and bring back some of their particles, it was quickly realized that these particles which made up the Northern Lights were highly radioactive, they were dangerous, and they were very unstable when brought down to Earth. Only two years later, the rocket range was shut down. Bored in Churchill, I decided I wanted to go explore the abandoned rocket testing range for myself. Most of my coworkers thought I was crazy. Perhaps understandably so. But the pilot agreed to come with me. Perhaps after what he'd gone through with the plane's engine cutting out, he had a skewed sense of risk. Because of course, exploring old military bases is indeed kinda risky. But we set off. The site was a series of massive buildings. They were made from metal and vast amounts of concrete, which must have been really difficult to transport this far north. These buildings were connected by large, wide tunnels, because nobody wants to walk around outside in minus 50 degree weather that could come in the winter. The complex's walls were all slanting at steep angles, presumably to prevent the snow from weighing on them and to cut through those violent winds that blow in off the Hudson Bay. I walked around the buildings. These massive rock boulders had been pushed up against its doors. There were a handful of old trucks parked outside, all rusted and rotted out by the elements. Many more snowmobiles were left behind, which had fallen into disrepair long ago. As I walked around, clouds and mosquitoes followed me. One building, which had a massive three-story high garage door in front of it, was built up with these gently sloping piles of dirt along its sides. Presumably this was for insulation, but it made it pretty easy to walk up to the roof to take in the view. In the distance in one direction was the Hudson Bay, and in the other were these lakes and small trees that went on as far as I could see. Closer to me though, these tunnels linking the buildings fanned out giant veins. Then I noticed that on one of the roofs was an emergency exit, and it was wide open. So of course I had to go and investigate. The emergency exit yawned open, and there was a ladder which disappeared into the darkness below. Gingerly I tested it, 
It was wood, which was sketchy, but it seemed solid. The pilot voiced some concern, which is a polite way to say he said something like, What? You're crazy, man. But I swung onto the ladder and descended into the inky blackness. The ladder was steeper, longer, and more rickety than I had anticipated. At the halfway point down the ladder is a poor point to decide that this is a bad idea, so I was committed by that point. At the bottom, it was much easier to see. There were holes in the sloping metal roof to let light in. Not intentionally, the elements had wore them out. There was this massive garage door at the far end that wasn't secure at the top. Along the roof were these pipes and tracks, so machinery could pull these large objects through the enormous space complex's wide corridors. The pilot was intrigued by my descriptions of the inside, and with some protests, climbed down the ladder and joined me. I didn't have a flashlight. Actually, I hadn't really prepared at all, whatsoever. I kinda actually didn't really expect to get inside. I used my cell phone's light to illuminate the way, and while using it, was recording video. The video is pretty useless, basically it's just black, but I recorded some of the audio which we're going to include. I'm sure you can recognize my voice in the clips, and the other voice with a Spanish accent is the pilot's. What? Is that a spaceship? What? Whoa, this is something else, man. It looks like a fucking weapon. The floor was concrete, and my footsteps sounded loud amongst the stillness, disturbing this quiet, tome-like atmosphere. The air was heavy with dust. I walked towards the room with the garage door in it, and the corridor opened into a massive open room. As I walked in, I noticed the open doors to it were two-story high, massive iron blast doors. Faded paint on them read, Rocket Assembly Building. A cavernous, pitch black, particularly large room had what looked like parts of a partially assembled outer shell of a rocket suspended in the air. There was a lot of stuff that was left behind. I found an old bicycle with its tires deflated and bicycled down these long, dark corridors. I wandered through the empty corridors with only my light of a cell phone to guide me. There were some empty crates labeled, For NASA Use Only. The corridors stretched on for these long distances, connecting with these webs of rooms. There were offices, labs, assembly areas, storage areas. They were all completely empty, except for some odd parts, and an awful lot of abandoned fire extinguishers. Only a few years after the failure to weaponize the Northern Lights, the rocket range was reopened in 1957 by the Canadian National Research Council, along with the Canadian Defence Research Board, which expanded the facility greatly. It was used for scientific testing and the development and firing of satellites and sounding rockets as well as balloons. It produced a wealth of knowledge about the magnetosphere and the ionosphere, and established a reputation for Canada as a leader in the field of space research and satellites. 
in the rocket range's heyday of the 1960s through the 1980s, the rocket testing range grew in conjunction with new partners including the US Navy and the US Air Force, as well as NASA. In all, some 3,500 rockets were fired from the facility, and at its peak, some 250 launches a year, and as many five a week, were made from this facility. The structure had obviously been abandoned very hastily, and much had been left behind, including some very detailed and highly specialized maps. This was strange, because if some of what had been left behind was considerably newer than the time periods we had understood the base was in use from. It had become increasingly clear that the rocket range had been used once again by someone after it had been shut down by the Canadian government in the 1980s. The pilot was intrigued by these maps and charts and began to pore over them by the light of his cell phone. As he did, I explored the next room. In it, I found a pile of old, full-body, bright white hazmat suits and these large, full-faced oxygen masks still in the original sealed plastic bags. I quickly tore open the plastic wrap they were in and put on a full hazmat suit over my clothes. Then I put on the face masks and went out to play an admittedly somewhat mean prank on the pilot by scaring him. Hey. Holy <laughs> man. <laughs> How could you do that to me, man? <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you scared the <laughs> out of me, man. <laughs> After the Cold War was over, the structure was closed. Some parts of the base looked much newer and were unquestionably more modern, though. We found some evidence of it being used much more recently. And then we found the control room, and it seemed to have been abandoned in a real hurry. Documents were there, including maps and guides, as well as financial documents. And even the coffee had been abruptly abandoned. Northern Cola. How old is this? <laughs> Don't abuse the BTUs, set thermostat. It's in here. What? Coffee? <laughs> they left before taking their coffee? This was a giant building apart from the others, which is built with these thick walls of concrete. Three glass windows in it looked out onto the rocket range. The windows, clearly reinforced glass, were cracked. The door to it was ajar. It was built from these heavy metals, and it was rusted, but it didn't make a sound as I strained to pull it open. Inside of the control room, I passed through a small room and ended up in something that looked like a control room from a movie had this long stainless steel desk filled with controls, like multicolored buttons, intercoms, microphones, and what looked like an old computer from the 1990s. I walked into the room behind it, but found it pitch black. 
The beams of my cell phone light picked up boxes and boxes of files, binders of maps strewn across tables, of open books, of documents, of paperwork, of photographs, and a banner that hung limply, reading in these big blue letters, Welcome to Spaceport Canada. I knelt down on the damp concrete floor and began to read some of these documents. They had just left everything. There were planning documents, there were printouts for investors, there were technical guides, there were blueprints, there were maps, there were budget documents. I almost expected to find a half-eaten sandwich on the table. It seemed that they'd cleared out that fast. The whole story was there for me to piece together of the last occupants of what was the formerly proud rocket range and the story of Spaceport Canada. Spaceport Canada was the dream of one lone young woman who had an idea. Oh, NASA. DARPA, I've seen that before, man. One dream come true. Siobhan Mullen has always looked skyward to realize her dreams. Thrills and excitement for Siobhan are a flight to the newest and fastest aircraft. Pushing a button at NASA, releasing a space shuttle, involving herself in the latest technological aspects of space design and building the world's first polar spaceport. What? What the <laughs> man? What is this? Siobhan is a super achiever. Surrounding herself with consultants and technologists in the aeronautical and space world. She has gained the trust and respect of the best in that world. Churchill can be proud to have Siobhan as their leader in reactivating the Churchill research range. Where is this from? Look at all the f***ing studies, man. What? Optical engineering. All work and no play is not her motto. In her spare time, Siobhan can be found playing classical piano. <laughs> aerial photography. She's, She's a, a pilot. <laughs> <laughs> Just like you. Drama, co-wrote two off-Broadway musicals. What? Scuba diving, mountain climbing. Who is this person? Destined to become one of the world's greatest achievers? What happened to her? What? I found a photo of the 30-year-old Siobhan Mullen amongst those old documents in the abandoned building. I recognized her that she was standing in what was still Churchill's community center. She had shoulder-length, dirty blonde hair and pale skin. She looked fit and healthy. She was wearing a bright blue cardigan, and she was holding a great big bouquet of roses. She was smiling a wide, genuine-looking smile as she gazed up at a large banner hanging from the ceiling above her, which read, Welcome to Spaceport Canada. Pouring through the old documents in the dark and abandoned old rocket range, we pieced together the story of Spaceport Canada. If it had have succeeded, the North, and indeed all of Canada, would be quite a different place today. This was back in the early 90s. The Cold War was over. Now there was a burgeoning appetite for commercial satellites for GPS, for communications, and for that awkward precursor to the cell phone, pagers. Siobhan Mullen knew that all these new technologies would be dependent on one thing, satellites. Now that the Cold War was over, corporations would be free to launch satellites into space. And these satellites would need to be launched by rockets. And these rockets would need somewhere to launch from. She knew that there wouldn't be enough demand to have several spaceports in the world. 
but she correctly recognized that wherever the first spaceport that worked was set up from would become the dominant center for launching satellites for the next few decades. She wasn't wrong. Until this day, there's really only one dominant spaceport in all of North America. Her plan to build the first spaceport in North America was bought into by the government of Canada, by large commercial partners in America and Europe, and most of all, by the people of this nearby town called Churchill, which had been suffering a severe economic downturn since the end of the Cold War, but was now wowed by the promise of thousands of jobs and millions of dollars of investments, which would become a reality if Siobhan Mullen's plan for Spaceport Canada worked. Churchill, having a climate described by Siobhan as an Arctic desert conditions, was favorable for launching rockets, and boasted several benefits. Despite its small population, it offered an airport, seaport, a rail line, and a community which was desperately looking for investors. Most of all, it boasted a recently abandoned, world-class rocket launching facility. Only a few years earlier, in the 1980s, before the rocket range had been abandoned, the Canadian government investments in space research fell, and budget cuts were dramatically affecting the ability of the rocket range to survive. In an effort to fund it, it became willing to let anyone use its rocket range for a fee. The rocket range found itself home to all sorts of new users, from the Swedish Space Corporation and the European Space Agency. But it was languishing and its glory days were behind it by 1985. The federal government wanted nothing to do with the cost of running the massive remote facility, even though it was finding new investors. In 1988, it was designated a National Historic Site. The following year, it fired its last rocket and was shut down. The facility had sat empty after the closure of the rocket range, and then the nearby town of Churchill languished after that closure. Winnipeg newspapers were fretting over the death of Churchill. And that was when Siobhan Mullen arrived in Churchill with her dream. She seemed to know that her plan was ahead of its time. She was making an audacious ask, but she seemed determined that if it worked, it would pay off. She seemed to indicate in the financial documents which were left behind that the spaceport was not going to grow that quickly, and that there was likely to only give me enough commercial business to keep one spaceport in North America going. But, she argued, if it got going first, there would be a massive demand for rockets to fire the satellites that would be needed to power the world of the future. It wasn't a small project. In the near term, Siobhan saw her spaceport employing some 1,100 people over the next few years. I remember Churchill only has a population of 899 people today. Siobhan Mullen argued that all that had to be done for little Churchill to dominate the North American market for satellite launches would be to head off their one competition with the same idea as her which was off in another long-disused airbase in a desert at a place that was, at the time, a mere airplane graveyard named Mojave in Arizona. Siobhan Mullen acted quickly, and things came together remarkably smoothly. She assembled a team of Canadian, European, former Soviet, and American scientists and technicians. 
She also assembled financial backing from the governments of Churchill and Manitoba, and the Canadian government granted her company a 30-year lease on the Rocket Lange. She traveled far and wide to get financial backing, and lined up some 21 corporations to back the enterprise. Notably, the giant American defense contractor Raytheon. And she managed to pull together an astonishing $100 million from investors towards this project. While she never ever portrayed the race between Arizona as a fight between Canadians and Americans, the fact is that local jobs would be going to the winner. Siobhan Mullen was actually an American herself. She came from Florida, she went to the best schools in the United States, but she did come to Canada by choice. She was simply arguing that Churchill was genuinely the best location for North America's one space fort. Siobhan's plan was to acquire Soviet intercontinental ballistic missiles, which were then, in the early 1990s, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, made redundant through new arms limitation treaties between Russia and the United States. She would then repurpose the old nuclear missiles to launch satellites into orbit. Obviously, they would no longer have nuclear warheads. That may sound audacious, but guess what? Siobhan did successfully acquire these disused nuclear rockets. But acquiring them turned out to be the easy part. Getting them exported from Russia and imported into Canada was another thing altogether. Delays in paperwork and the rockets being held up at borders wasted precious months, which actually dragged out into years. Meanwhile, construction on the rival spaceport in Arizona continued. When they finally arrived in Canada, the rockets turned out to be so poor quality they could not be useful. The alternative was new rockets from American arms manufacturers which were vastly more expensive. One of these new rockets would cost between 13 and 17 million dollars each, which was a prohibitive price tag for a single use launch. It seems that this one lone woman had been a powerful force in arguing for investors to trust her and to dedicate large sums of money to this project. However, as these setbacks and cost overruns, which weren't her fault, piled up, these investors began to grow impatient at the lack of results. Other problems became apparent as well. The qualities of facilities at the spaceport were, after all, from the 1950s. Water had to travel through 46 kilometers of piping to reach the rocket range, and the pipes often froze. Insulation was an issue for people working there, and the extreme cold temperatures and the cost of heating were astronomical. New problems popped up too, like the toxic asbestos the base was insulated with. Something that I hadn't considered at all before going in there. <coughs> Spaceport Canada had been inaugurated in 1993. It was a corporation that was governed by a board. Siobhan Mullen had urged each board member to go to Europe and drum up more investors, but it seems like the board members failed to do so. The investors themselves, faced with larger than promised price tags and unsure of the profitability of what they were doing, continued to delay major launch decisions, balking 
at these spiraling multi-million dollar costs. But just to clarify, what we're talking about is something that seems painfully obvious to us now, but might not have seemed that way back then. These investors were literally saying, will this whole cell phone thing really take off? Maybe it's just a fad. Siobhan Mullen was arguing that cell phones would be the way of the future. But if older listeners think back to the early 90s and those giant, big, bulky cell phones that cost astronomical amounts and didn't really have great service and were actually kind of the butt of a lot of jokes, well, maybe you can understand how the investors might have been reluctant to give millions of dollars to the idea that today everyone would be carrying around tiny little rectangles powered by satellites in their pockets. Sounds kind of far-fetched when you put it that way. On a technical level, there were also some problems she was encountering. Sensors were turning out to fail in the cold. For whole months, it was too cold to launch. And more importantly, it was too cold for equipment to be shipped in during the winter because the Hudson Bay would freeze. American investors began to use the faster-going Mojave launch pad in Arizona, which didn't have these issues with extreme cold. The board of Spaceport Canada continued to fail to drum up European investors. It had now been half a decade, and not one rocket had been launched. On April 28, 1998, fully five years since Spaceport Canada opened, it launched its first rocket. It was a research project for the Canadian Space Agency. Neither the buyer nor the subject was actually much different than what had been launched from the facility decades before. In fact, the rocket itself, a Black Brant, was the exact same kind of research rocket that had been launched years before. Siobhan Mullen did a media tour, lauding it as an important event for Canada, and saying, this inaugural launch from Spaceport Canada signifies the potential Canada has to lead the world in the next generation launch services by providing a commercial spaceport for international launch vehicles. But it turned out this wasn't a new beginning, but a grand finale. Only two weeks later, Spaceport Canada ceased operations forever. Today, the Mojave Spaceport is the world's largest spaceport, and it's booming, with hundreds of millions of dollars of investments pouring into the region around it. After the closure of Spaceport, Churchill slumped back into its economic recession for some years, until a later boom in tourism, which was mostly wealthy Europeans coming to see the Northern Lights and the Polar Bears, revived its fortunes. And today, Siobhan Mullen runs a company that makes math-based video games for children. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Produced by Jordan Lozier.